This is my higher ed. On today's Mind Your Higher Ed, the death of lectures, problems with policy, and influence in education. Hi, I'm Martin Hughes, aka University Boy. Welcome to another My HE. On today's show, it's a hodgepodge of all sorts of different things, but at the same time, hopefully bringing things together to see that a lot of what happens in higher ed is linked in ways that we can recognize. So first up, I've been looking at, I guess it's that time of the month again, that the death of lectures is being discussed. There was a piece in the BBC News website that was talking about lectures continuing on to this day, even though they've been around for so long and they maybe aren't as useful as they once were, that things have improved or at least should have done. What is it that is the lure of lectures? Why are we seeing tens, if not hundreds of students all sitting in a theatre watching as a tutor talks about whatever it is that they want to talk about? Will there be slides? Yes or no. Will there be some audio visual? Will there be some sort of a YouTube clip? The point is, is that it still rolls around being a presentation that students can just look at. Now, there's a couple of interesting responses from Steve Wheeler, otherwise known on Twitter as Timbuktuth. And he says that if a lecture's nothing more than an expert standing in front of an audience speaking for an hour, then there are clearly issues around its effectiveness. Many lectures do fit this profile, and even those where academics try to embellish with technology can fall flat. And so there you go, even with the YouTube videos and the other bits and pieces to look flowery and wonderful and woo, it doesn't necessarily do anything extra. Essentially, students can see past the facade. And that's not to say that academics are deliberately trying to do something to pull the wool over students' eyes. It's just that the lecture is the lecture and there hasn't really been time to move things on, according to the BBC News report, that academics have been working on their research. They've been working on all the other issues that face them in their role, that they've not been able to really focus on what to do instead of lectures, that there's not been this serious, long, well thought out process of seeing what to do instead of. But at the same time, there are many things that you can do as well as. So the lecture isn't any longer the only option. There are many different ways of imparting information and getting things across to students. So are we saying that we need to see the death of lectures, that there is absolutely no use for them whatsoever? I mean, way back in, I think it was 2010, but I will look it up now with the magic of being on an audio show, I can pause, but make it sound like I hadn't even gone away. Okay, I'm back. See? Brilliant. Seamless. Anywho. Right. So, yes, back in 2010, I wrote a piece for the university blog.co.uk, which was about should lectures be banned? And it was off the back of a talk from Donald Clark. And what I said very quickly, I was looking for people's responses and got some great responses as well, that 
the lecture is just one part of the learning process. We do all sorts of things. And so should we just see lectures go away completely in favor of everything else? I said that if new techniques do resemble lectures, so if anything like, say, a MOOC, for instance, uh, you watch these talks, but are essentially mini lectures, why have these delivery styles then essentially been given a lukewarm reception? As in, if you watch a TED talk, for instance, that in itself is a lecture. I mean, often a well-crafted storytelling lecture, but these are lectures nonetheless. But if the new techniques maybe don't resemble lectures, whatever those things are, talk about the flipped classroom, for instance, that kind of thing, well, the result has been to abandon lectures and not to rethink them. So really, for me, it's not about banning something. What's the point in saying that something that did work should just go to by the wayside? Instead, if it doesn't work, then fine, don't rethink it. If there are some issues that you could work with, then do rethink it. There doesn't seem to be any real problem here other than you could easily fall back on the lecture being the default. And what we need to move out of is thinking of anything as a default. When you're looking at higher education, the whole point is to be looking at the cutting edge of learning. So if we're using these out of date, call them technologies, the lecture is essentially a way to impart that information. So as a technology, it may be dated. So it's either completely obsolete or it's simply in need of an update. One way or another, it's not about saying, let's ban it, let's get rid of it, this is the end. But saying, you know what, we need to rethink what's going on and then regroup. Until we do that kind of thing, then, the lecture may or may not be worthwhile. But I don't think we've seen the back of it yet for all sorts of reasons that I've discussed many times in the past. It just doesn't make sense to say that we have to do anything other than lecture. What we probably need to do though is rethink the nature of what that is. So if we had no other ways of taking that information and broadcasting it to students, then we might be in trouble. But because there are so many other ways, one of the big questions to ask perhaps would be, is it worth using the lecture as the default or should we be looking at something else instead? Indeed, should there ever be a default or should we look at everything from the perspective of the start of a new module, let's say, and then you have to take it from that. What's the best way to take the information and then bring it to students? What's the best way to help students in their learning journey for this module? Is it being more practical? Is it to help them to understand something through outings and other experiences? All of these things are important. And if you do need to work with a traditional lecture, then another way to look at this is saying, do you need everyone to be in a lecture hall to listen to the tutor? Or is there a different way to broadcast that lecture or to allow that information in a lecture form to come to the students without them having to always attend live on the day at the lecture theatre? I think I'll leave the final word here with something that Steve Wheeler said again, which is that one of the constraints of the lecture theatre is its design. Rows and rows of front-facing, tiered seating are not conducive to discussion but often the turn to the person next to you and kind of instruction can work at a superficial level. 
until universities start to reconfigure lecture theatres and build spaces more friendly to discussion, we're left with finding ways to adapt existing traditional spaces. And that's so true. Where do you begin with a problem like the lecture? And that's not the only problem either. There are problems with policy, because the nature of policy is always changing. It's very much the reason why I'm thinking about things from a level of bridging gaps in higher education, because I want to look at the people behind what's going on. Otherwise, you have this never-ending journey of policy. It's always changing. You don't know where you're going with it. And what I found is that from one moment to the next, you could have worked out all sorts of amazing information and then used case studies and then worked out, right, this is the best way forward. We've got some best practices, some processes that we fine-tuned. This is going to work out for the best. And then all of a sudden, the policy changes. This is something I heard Michael Young talking about on an SRHE presentation, which is available on audio. So I'll put that in the show notes. He was talking about the 1980s, but I don't feel that much has changed at all. And in some ways, it may have even got worse. Young says, We focused on policies, but each time we thought we understood a policy, it changed because we got a new minister. So when you're talking about politics, every time there's, say, a reshuffle or there's a new government comes in, any of these things occur, all of a sudden you can be faced with brand new policy motions being put in place, which renders the current issues, the current policies and so on, obsolete. So the work that you may have been putting toward how things currently are, are no longer going to be relevant or valid because what's happening currently is not going to be what's happening shortly down the line. So what struck me about what Michael Young said was really the fact that this was to do with the 1980s. We're now here in the 2010s currently, and we still have a great issue with policy. So we've got the new higher education bill, so on and so forth. We've got all sorts of things happening, but you've also got Brexit. All this uncertainty, where do you begin? So you have new policy, you've got new thoughts, there are things to do with tuition fees, you've got these issues to do with Brexit and immigration and so on. So it's non-stop. And I don't envy the person who has to work on all these different levels in order to essentially guess what to do next. It's why I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation that I had with Paul Greatrix, because you do have to be looking, as he was saying, sometimes as much as, like, say, a 100 years or so into the future, you have to be considering as an institution, when you're looking at these top level priorities, it's not just what's happening in the immediate future. It's not even what's happening three, five, maybe 10 years down the line, but 50, 100 years. What are you doing in the long term? And there's more reason for that because of the propensity now to get to take out these loans. And so millions of pounds may well be going to an institution and they'll be putting work in, they'll be paying the interest only maybe, and then having to do in one or two lump sums uh, a repayment later on down the line. But this may be, say, 30 years down the line, and things may be rather different. What's the situation, and how is it all going to play out? The answer really is just as simple as, and as annoying, difficult as, I don't know. But of course, you can't go with that. You have to keep on digging. In another SRHE talk that I heard, 
Helen Perkins was talking about how policy used to be discussed openly and earlier and more directly as well. But she says that the landscape at the time was also less diverse. So you have this double-edged sword. And so how can this research be taken further? How can you look at policy in a more effective way? What Helen Perkins said is that if you go to Wonky, then there is a huge amount of great information and what it should do is add to the situation. It shouldn't overtake research. That research, actual academic research on these policy matters needs to continue. And then reaching out further, we have these very specific wonk sites and policy sites and so on. That is key. So we need to see things complementing each other and working together. So again, this is about bridging gaps. You're not saying that a policy website is going to be used instead of research. Now, the reason why I'm talking about this right after talking about lectures is because it's a similar situation. Alternative methods of learning, other ways of imparting information should add to the current situation. It shouldn't overtake everything else and say, you know what, lectures, they're just obsolete now, get rid of them completely. What we need to do is to look at all of these situations and say, how can they work with the current landscape? How can we work with new things? How can old things all play into this? And only at the point when it's pointless do we say, we'll get rid of that. We'll just move it to one side. Now, in both these cases, when it comes to lecturing, when it comes to policy making and working out what an institution can do next and what people within these institutions can do, there is this potential trap that we feel that the higher, the further you go in education, the less you're affected by these biases that occur. And especially when you're hearing about things like fake news online and about how more people who had a degree or higher than a degree were more likely to have voted remain in the Brexit vote rather than leave. There tends to be this assumption that, oh, well, there you go. You just need more education to be able to move away from maybe making a mistake or thinking something else. But actually, no, you are still liable to have biases. And there's a piece in The Guardian by David Runciman who basically says that our biases aren't eliminated with a university education. At the very best, the biases might change. And so you will still have biases. No matter who you are in the world, bias exists. It's just that they might be a different bias. And one way that Runciman talks about it is about like-minded, similar people. So the people that you spend most time around, you you feel like, oh, well, that that's the norm. And then people begin to say everyone has something or everyone aspires to something. So in this case, does everyone, you know, have a degree? Is that the kind of thing you say? Do you say everyone uses social networks? Everyone's on Twitter these days, that kind of thing. Now, that might be true among the people that you spend time with, your friends, the social groups, whether they're online or, or in real life, whether you want to distinguish between the two these days. But, you know, it's not accounting for everyone. There is always bias in play. The fact that I said about differentiating or not differentiating between in real life and the online world, well, what about those people who don't spend any time online? For them, 
there is a big difference. But for people who use it in their day to day life all the time, it's almost like the Internet is an extension of their own being, then of course there isn't so much of a distinction. But that doesn't mean that every single person views it the same way. So there's always bias in play in all sorts of ways. Now, that's something that we need to be aware of. Now, you can't get away from your biases. So the best thing to do is to embrace the biases, to recognize that you're going to have these flaws. And so then taking them on board, recognizing when maybe you do have that, or at least challenging yourself every time you notice the possibility that somebody else might think something different to you. And this really does affect education in a big way. Going on with what Runciman says in this Guardian piece is not all of the educated are winners in this world, but almost all of the winners are educated. It gives the impression that knowledge has become a proxy for influence. The way I see these things today manifesting themselves is that no matter whether you're talking about lectures or policy or biases in education, that kind of thing, that there are all these imperfections, all these flaws. There are all these arguments that we can have. There are these personal issues where we can bring up a number of anecdotes and say, this is why X is better than Y. But instead of moving away from the things that don't appear to work with what we feel, then maybe we would be able better to work with others who do see things differently, where that diversity does exist. Now, I've been looking at Tim Harford's new book, Messy, and he says, when you give people an important enough problem to solve together, they can put aside their differences. A good problem contains the seeds of its own solution. Rather than lubricating people with drinks at a networking reception or getting them to play silly games at a team building event, the way to get conflicting teams to gel is to give them something worth doing together, something where failing to cooperate simply isn't an option. In terms of the Brexit situation, one of the reports I saw was that academics were being told to stop being antagonistic in the way that they were driving the arguments for keeping overseas students off of immigration targets. And it can be really difficult when you see something clearly. It doesn't matter whether it's that or whether it's something else. But when you see something so clearly and somebody else you feel isn't seeing it clearly and they're not interested in hearing from you, then sometimes you want to dig your heels in or you want to shout even louder. You want to make that heard even more. Well, in terms of bridging gaps, it's about speaking the language of others and finding ways to help communicate the ideas. So, OK, then academics are being told not to be so antagonistic. Now, that doesn't mean that academics are the only ones at fault. It doesn't mean that academics should be doing things on the terms they've just been told, especially if it's just stop antagonizing us. But at the same time, there must be ways in which this conversation can be better flowing and that more can be done. If you can't bridge those gaps, if there is seemingly some reason why people are, you know, not really able to come together for whatever reason, that is when things can escalate. And one of the difficulties here is that fewer young people, for instance, apparently are believing that a democracy is necessary. There was a report that I saw where US teens were asked whether or not 
they thought it was worth living in a democratic country and the numbers being asked that question the proportions are, are getting lower that many more are saying actually no it's not so important but if you think about the background to that maybe it's not that a democracy is being shunned maybe it's just that there is a, a lack of belief that there really is the democracy involved the people are more likely to turn in on themselves and to look for this well not maybe the fake news but maybe that fake news is almost something that becomes popular because people are looking to have their confirmation bias boosted or they're looking to see something where they already have a feeling that that's the way it is they're, they're worried about looking beyond what they already feel they know and the situations they're already used to so as much as embracing diversity is a wonderful thing it may not seem that way it may actually become less and less of a, a thing there is this danger that diversity seems like it's gone too far but it might not be the diversity that we're talking about it may be that there is a lack of support in other ways in ways where maybe an electorate in a democratic country for instance feels like they're not getting what they wanted within the democracy they thought they were in now this all sounds very confused perhaps you know how have we got from lectures to policy to now talking about whether or not you believe that democracy is a thing that's really existing etc etc but that's the thing the conversations we have on a day-to-day -day basis are not always as simple as we might think they are that it's all well and good to write a throwaway comment at the bottom of the internet and you look at some of these and you think well why have they said that or somebody just makes this bold statement of oh if only this happened everything would be fine everyone else you're all idiots but that's the thing is that there is so much more than that simplistic statement there's always more going on and so you're liable to get incredibly confused perhaps there's never an easy way around any of this and that's where we get back to lectures it's a false question to ask what we should be doing instead because we still don't really know exactly what to do what's good is that now going over to the policy and the research side of things it's good that academic research is done in a huge way about ed tech and about what does constitute good learning what does work for students at universities there's academic research being done on all sorts of things all the time and that needs to be done there also needs to be greater engagement with people who are not doing the research but who are interested who are on the peripheries who are managing these things and that's where the bigger discussion online for instance so in the case of he policy wonky comes into play and then when you're moving things further out to external stakeholders to the wider public so there need to be other ways of getting that collaboration getting that engagement so that we understand what makes people tick why situations get to the way that they do and to see where there needs to be a better understanding for everyone so we all live in our little worlds of bias and we can't get away from that but if we can embrace the fact that we all do we can then look behind what's making our biases happen and that we can then help others 
in ways that they may not be looking at the biases. We might not be able to say to them, oh, look how biased you are. But we could still possibly do things with an understanding of what types of biases, what types of opinions are out there, and then addressing them in a way that isn't so much confrontational, but that allows everyone into the conversation. That's where the challenge comes in. And today is not a day when I'm going to be offering up all sorts of answers. And again, if I do that, that's just me reeling off some answers. Not really the point of any of that. It's more, we need to understand that nothing's simple. I think we pretty much go with that, fair enough. But also that we're all biased. When it comes to universities, when it comes to higher education, there is so much that comes around full circle that it doesn't matter how many people are studying toward an undergraduate degree, how many graduates we have within a population, that every member of the public is touched in one way or another, whether it's through the technology, whether it's through the food they buy, the places they go, and one of many different experiences that people will have on a day-to-day basis, that somewhere along the lines, there were discoveries being made somewhere on a campus that was sowing the seed for what became that thing. If we can do that with technologies and with writing and with other types of research, then hopefully we can do that as well through the conversations we have, through the connections we make, and through the genuine interest that we have with all of the things that are going on around us. You may not want to think about this idea of being in a a post-fact world and stuff like that, but if you're not able to have these academic debates, then what can we do? A bit like the potential death of the lecture. If you can't have a lecture, then what on earth do we do? When a question seems that weird, impossible, something that you wouldn't really think about because you don't have the time, well, think about the more immediate issues as well. Similar kind of question. If you can't do things the way you're used to doing or the way you feel is necessary in order to get the answer, if everything else isn't working in that way, what are the alternatives? It's a tough one. As I say, today, not the time for answering any of that, but posing the question is one that hopefully I'll be able to ask more and more people as guests on Mind Your Higher Ed. Thank you very much for listening. And if you've had any thoughts on this matter, if there are things going around in your head, whether it's to do with the usefulness of lectures, whether it's to do with the craziness of updating policy every five minutes, whatever it's about, always feel free to get in touch with me. I'm University Boy on Twitter. And also you can talk via comments at learningalways.co.uk. Thanks for listening to my HE. Mind Your Higher Ed is part of the Learning Always Network and you can find show notes and more over at learningalways.co.uk. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at University Boy. Music on the show is by From the Dust and is licensed under Creative Commons. I've been Martin Hughes. Let's keep bridging gaps in higher education.